Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast, providing you with insightful commentary and developments in the world of healthcare leadership. To learn more, visit ACHE.org. And without further ado, your host. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Sperling. Today's guest is Dr. David Williams. Dr. Williams is the Norman Professor of Public Health and the chair of the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He is also a professor of African and African-American studies and sociology at Harvard University. Previously, he served on the faculty of Yale University and the University of Michigan. Dr. Williams is an internationally recognized authority on social influences on health. He served as staff director of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Commission to Build a Healthier America and as a key scientific advisor to the award-winning PBS film series, Unnatural Causes, Is Inequality Making Us Sick? The author of more than 450 scientific papers, his research has enhanced our understanding of the ways in which race, socioeconomic status, stress, racism, health behavior, and religious involvement can affect physical and mental health. His research has been featured by some of the U.S.'s top print and television news organizations, Dr. Williams holds a Master of Public Health degree from Loma Linda University and a doctorate in sociology from the University of Michigan. And he will be a featured speaker at ACHE's Virtual Leadership Symposium, April 11th and 12th. To learn more, you can register today at ACHE.org. With that introduction, Dr. Williams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's really good to join you today. All right, let's jump right in. So as I just mentioned, you'll be giving a talk at the upcoming Virtual Leadership Symposium titled An Evidence-Based Approach to Addressing Healthcare's Inequities. Now, we don't want you to give away too much here, but you've developed a tool called the Everyday Discrimination Scale. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how it is used? Sure. The Everyday Discrimination Scale was my attempt to develop concrete measures of the experiences of interpersonal discrimination that could be used in scientific studies. So I developed the scale back in the 1990s. Uh, Today it has been used in over 25 countries around the world and more than 450 papers have documented that everyday discrimination adversely affects health. Now, first of all, what does the scale capture? It doesn't capture all aspects of discrimination, just little day-to-day indignities. How often you're treated with less courtesy and respect than others. How often you receive poorer service than others in restaurants or stores. How often do people act as if they are afraid of you. You know, just, just little indignities. And what the research indicates, that persons who score high on that measure have a broad range of negative health effects negative effects on mental health and negative effects on physical health. For example, people who score high on everyday discrimination are more likely to have high blood pressure, more likely to develop type 2 diabetes, more likely to develop subclinical heart disease, more likely to have high levels of inflammation, more likely to be obese, more likely to get less sleep at night and both less time in bed, but also poorer quality sleep. Just some examples of a broad range of negative effects on physical and mental health linked to just how people are treated on a day-to-day basis by others. All right, Dr. Williams. So with that being said, and then for our audience here of, of hospital and healthcare leaders, then 
what do we need to know about these patients when they walk through the door? I mean, how can we help our teams provide culturally conscious care, if you will? I think there are two things that would strike me that are important. One is that we, we train our healthcare staff to treat every person with dignity and respect. Now, everyone agrees with that. That's a no-brainer that said, why would you even say right. that? I, I do that. <laughs> what I like to tell my students that I think of myself as a prejudiced person. And I tell them I think of myself as a prejudiced person because I would like to think of myself as a normal human being. And I say, if you are a normal human being, you are probably prejudiced. Now, you're not, I'm not saying you're racially prejudiced because it's not just about race. What research tells us is that every society, every culture, every community has in-groups and out-groups, groups that are viewed positively and groups that are viewed negatively. And what the research also tells us is that when we meet someone in one third of the time it takes to blink our eye, we size up that person. And if that person matches a category for which we have negative stereotypes, negative assumptions based on how we were raised and how we were socialized, we will treat that diff person differently. And I may not be racially prejudiced, but I would say to someone who said, I'm not racially prejudiced. Well, what might be the categorical beliefs you have about gay people, about fat people, about poor people, about women, about old people. You get the point. Mm -hmm. These are normal processes that shape how we interact to people when we focus on them as a member of some social group that's important, was important in our socialization in terms of what we learned about that group. So you've mentioned research, and as research becomes more available, um, talking about the root causes of these healthcare inequities, what are the tools and strategies out there right now that are actively helping us to close these gaps? And I guess we can say both inside and outside hospital walls. Sure. So, I mean, one basic thing that is a starter, not a solution, is implicit bias training. Yep. Raising awareness level that these processes exist and there are things we can do about them. What research shows, though, is that just a, a two-hour implicit bias workshop, while it will raise awareness level, it doesn't change human behavior. We need practice. So one of the programs that has been successful was like a 12-week program where people went, you know, two hours a week and practiced and learned exercises and learned ways in which basically we want people, when you meet someone, to resist the normal tendency to put them into some social category and try to understand that person as an individual and understand, trying to understand the, you know, that, that individual person as opposed to, to the social categories to which they belong. So that, that's one uh, strategy. Another strategy that, that is also helpful is to increase the diversity of the healthcare workforce. Um, I'll give you an example. This was a randomized control trial, so the highest quality of scientific evidence done in Oakland, California, where they took um, about 1,200 African-American males, uh, give them $50 as a coupon to go to a, a Saturday health clinic. Um, and when they got to the clinic, they were randomized to be treated by an African-American physician or by a physician of another race. And what the research found is that those African-American males who were treated by the African-American physician, 
They were more likely to talk to the doctor about other health problems they had. They were more likely to do the screening for diabetes. They were more likely to accept the flu vaccine. They were more likely to do the screening for cholesterol. Basically, they were much more engaged with their provider and received maximal care that was available to them. So, so strengthening the diversity of the workforce is helpful. Let me tell you about another study, and this study actually comes from California as well. They were looking at, at uh, racial disparities um, for patients with HIV and the treatment that they had received and the extent to which uh, patients were following through under recommendations that they were given. And they found, in general, there were racial disparities. However, they found that those providers who scored high, regardless of their race, scored high on a scale of cultural competence, there were no disparities for those providers. And what were some of the measures on the scale? It was physicians who said, family and friends are as important to health as doctors. I am familiar with the lay beliefs my patients have. I ask my patients about the alternative therapies they might use. I find out what my patients think is the cause of their illness. I involve my patients in decisions about their healthcare. Again, what emerges here is a provider who is listening, who is attentive, who is respectful, who is engaging the patients, and regardless of the race, there was no disparities with when that kind of dignity and respect and engagement exists with the patient. Mm. All right, well, let's take some of that insight and some of that perspective and apply it to where we are now, meeting the moment. And during the height of the pandemic, we heard a great deal about uh, disparities in health outcomes for disadvantaged groups and for communities of color in particular. So with COVID-19 becoming more normalized, um, and you just mentioned some of these strategies, but how do we keep health equity at the forefront right now and continue working towards solutions as we, again, sort of emerge here from the COVID-19 pandemic or becoming more normalized? You, you're absolutely right. The COVID-19 pandemic shone a bright light on the problem of racial and, and broader economic disparities in the United States. And I think in addition to its adverse health impact, it also had a large economic impact on, on poor, poor people, poor households in the U.S. in general. I mean, a large number of poor households report someone in their home lost their job or lost their income as a result of the pandemic. And, and, and for African-Americans and Latinos, about 50% of them uh, said that was true uh, for someone in their household. So I, I think we need to think of the, both the health impact and, and uh, the social impact. And one of the important trends in medicine uh, in recent years is paying attention not only to the medical problem that the patient shows up with, but the broader challenges in their lives. Uh, the World Health Organization put it this way, what do we accomplish if all we do is treat illness and send people back to live in the same conditions that made them sick in the first place? I'll give you one program that was born here in Boston 30 plus years ago called the Medical Legal Partnership. It was Dr. Zuckerman at the pediatrics unit uh, developed it. And basically, uh, a patient, uh, a primary care provider in pediatrics could refer uh, a patient who came uh, and the parent of, of the patient who came to a number of specialists. One of the specialists is an attorney. Yes, the hospital has a lawyer on staff to solve problems in the lives of their patients. Imagine 
a mother bringing her child with asthma, but the asthma is being caused by the poor housing conditions in the apartment where they live. All the asthma medication in the world will not help that child to breathe symptom-free if that mother has to take the child back to the same housing conditions that caused the problem. And the mother has complained to the landlord and the landlord has done nothing. It makes a difference when a lawyer calls and says, you are in violation of the housing code. We will sue you if you don't fix the problem. And, and that is an example of, of taking a broader look at the challenges that patients face and, and trying to respond appropriately to them. There was a recent report from the National Academy of Medicine which was entitled Integrating Social Care into the Delivery of Healthcare, of a closer links between referring primary care providers, providers referring the patient to others of the healthcare team who could help them solve some of the challenges in their lives. So to the extent we can begin to do that, we will be making some considerable progress as well. All right, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for spending some time with us today on the Healthcare Executive Podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been good to talk with you. I do want to remind everyone, Dr. David Williams will be speaking at ACHE's Virtual Leadership Symposium, April 11th and 12th. So for more information and to register, visit ACHE.org slash VLS. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll hope you join us next time on ACHE's Healthcare Executive Podcast. This has been the Healthcare Executive Podcast, brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. And for more information, find us online at ache.org.